Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name is Dan Kent. Uh, although this time of year, you can also call me Danta if you want. That's, just, that's up to you. <clears throat> it's the joke that keeps on giving every year. <laughs> uh, I'm a teaching pastor here. I am also um, a quality control for eggnog and Christmas cookies, and, uh, but mostly a teaching pastor, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, we're in this series. I'm so excited. This is our Christmas series. It's called God is the Gift. And, uh, you know, every year it's Christmas, and so we, it's like the series that a church has to do every year. And it's hard to um, do that because the, we all know that the birth of Jesus is the most profound it's the beginning of the most profound event in the history of history. And, and so you don't want that to get old. And so you always want to find a new angle to get at that in a different way. And so this year, we want to get at that uh, in a unique way. We've been, we've been looking at how uh, Jesus fulfills the hopes of Israel. And to do that, uh, we've been looking at Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and it says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. And so uh, this passage in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it's repeated over 20 times in the Old Testament. And to me, what that signifies is that this was very important to the Israelites. It was sort of like their statement of faith. We talk a lot here about how the most important thing in our heads is our picture of God. This was their picture of God. This is the God that they hoped God was like. I hope God is actually like this. And then, thousands of years later, Jesus comes and he is. The hope is real. The hope is true. So this series is really looking at how Jesus fulfills this hope, how Jesus is everything that we want for Christmas. And, um, and so that's the idea. And, and so what we decided to do is we're going to look at each of these characteristics that, that are noted in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 and just show how Jesus fulfills that and also show why that's such good news for us. And Greg kicked us off uh, with week one with probably the toughest part and he was looking at uh, God's justice and the fact that God is just. And that's such good news because, uh, you know, if God is just, that means that ultimate reality is just. And if ultimate reality is just, that means that every injustice that we see now eventually somehow will be made right. And if that's true, if God is just and if ultimate reality is just, man, I can face any injustice now if I know that God is going to make it right. But, whoa, if there is no God, and if God is not just, then it's possible that the injustice might be ultimate. And that is a woeful reality to face. And so when Jesus is born and we find out that God really is just, wow, is that good news. Can you see how that is just, because justice is what we all want. No matter where we are in the world, wherever we are in life, we've all faced injustice. Uh, whether you're you know, politically left or politically right, or if you're in Russia, or if you're in Ukraine, or if you're in Africa, or if you're in America, we all want justice. We might disagree about what justice looks like, but that's what we want. And the fact that God is just, that means that our hope is fulfilled in God. Shauna then talked about uh, the fact that God is forgiving. That God is, and she talked about the gift of forgiveness. And this isn't, 
definitely includes forgiveness of our sins, but it's more than that too, because uh, it's, God is forgiveness. God is forgiving in general. He's slow to anger. The way the Hebrew puts it is he's long of nose. And I'll let you watch the sermon to figure out what that means. But he's slow to anger. In other words, God watches us, not with his hand cocked back, ready to slap us when we screw up, but he watches us with loving eyes. He watches us with patience. He watches us in the hopes that we become better and he goads us and he encourages us to be all that we can be in him. Uh, And then last week, Cedric talked about God's faithfulness. Uh, That was a great sermon, wasn't it? Uh, Were you here for that one? Man, that was a good sermon. He talked about God's faithfulness and I tell you what, for me, this is such good news because in this world, it's so hard to find faithfulness. We're not good to each other. <laughs> We're just not. And, and we, we can be very, very bad to each other. And, um, and in this world, God came and visited us. And, and we only let him be here for about 30 some years. And, and we killed him. This is the world that killed God. And even Jesus was betrayed here. And so imagine how hard it is for us to find loyalty and faithfulness. And yet the Bible tells us that God is faithful to us and what a precious gift that is because that's what we all really want is a faithful God. And so for my part today, I'm looking at God's grace, this idea that God is gracious. And, um, and you know, we've you probably heard sermons on God's grace, and I'm hoping to kind of get at it from a different angle and show a different dimension that kind of gets neglected a lot when we talk about grace. And in order to do this, I need to look at the Hebrew and the Greek. And I want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of the language work here, I got directly from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. And if you're not familiar with that ministry, it's a really great ministry. You can find them on YouTube uh, and just look for the Bible Project. And they do really great educational videos on the Bible. But what uh, Tim Mackey says is that this word gracious, when it says that the Lord is gracious, that word, the adjectival form of that is kanun, and it's based on the noun, I'm going to try and do this, chen. (laughs) Now I'm going to refer back to this over and over again, and there's no way I'm going to do that 30 times in the sermon. So I'm going to just call it kehen. And what kehen means is that it means to show favor or grace towards somebody. But it's more than that, too, because as it is with most translations, sometimes it takes multiple words to capture the concept of an idea in another language. And that's definitely the case here because it's not just grace and favor. It's grace and favor that's prompted or it emerges out of delight. And so when you see this word used, like for instance in Psalm, uh, I think in Psalm 37, the writer of Psalm refers to a poet with lips of kehen. That is, his words just provoke delight in us. And Proverbs talks about this beautiful jewel that uh, when you see it, you have kehen. You're prompted into delight. You delight over this jewel. And, and so there's this delight component to grace that I really want to focus on in, in this sermon because I just think it's just this rich uh, part of grace that we don't hear a lot about, and I think it's so important. Um, We see this in Esther. If you haven't read Esther, by the way, it's not a very big book, and uh, it's such a good read. It it reads like um, ancient Breaking Bad or uh, Better Call Saul. It's just like this drama, and it's so good as a story itself. But the story is about uh, Esther, and she is this this Israelite woman. She's very beautiful. Uh, Basically, let me just put it this way. Taylor Swift is just an Esther wannabe. I'll just put it that way. But Esther is this this Israelite woman, and um, she marries this Persian king. 
and this Persian king is, you know, this great king. And uh, however, Esther gets in a little bit of a jam here because the second in command to the king, for, for reasons that the story uh, articulates, um, becomes enraged and hateful toward the Israelites. And he wants to slaughter them all. And the king's like, well, you're in charge of the military. If you think that's right, if you think that's what needs to be done, then, then do it. Not knowing that Esther was an Israelite. And so Esther goes to uh, the king, and it says that she made a request for Kehen. She made a request that the king would find delight in her and spare her people. And the text says that the king did, in fact, delight in Esther and granted this favor for her and spared her people. And so that's like that favor or grace that's prompted from this delight that the king had in her. Um, And you see this uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, too you get to the prophets and they start to anticipate. They're looking back at all the times that God has showed Kehen to his people. And they're anticipating a future when God will show Kehen again. And that's exactly what you find in the New Testament. Now, it gets a little weird with the language here because in the Old Testament, we're talking about Hebrew and now we make this huge transition into Greek. It's a totally different language. So Kehen is translated into a different word, which is charis. Uh, But it's that same concept. And so when the, the New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament, they used charis for kehen. And what you find is right away in John's gospel, for instance, uh, you find John tapping into the importance of this delightful grace that God has. And, and John says that in Jesus, God's charis, God's delightful grace walks among us. That's what it says in uh, uh, John 1, 14. Later on, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and says, look, we are saved by this delightful grace that God has in us. And now, of course, Paul, you know this more than anybody in the New Testament. Paul is very aware of our sin. He's very aware of the fact that we are dead in our transgressions and that we rebel against God and that we rage against God and that we're screw-ups, basically. But even in spite of all that, Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. He says, But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. You can't get more dead than dead in your transgressions. I mean, you're just dead. You're gone. But even then, by his graceful delight in us, he has saved us. And I think the good news of this for me is that If God really is this graceful God, if God has this delightful grace for me, then what that means is that no matter how terrible I act, no matter how far I fall, I always have hope because God delights in me. God delights in me even when I screw up. It says, Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our transgressions, we couldn't have gone further away from God in our actions, God still delighted in us in the face of all of that. Uh, We can betray God. We can run away from God. We can rebel against God. I mean, holy cow, look at the ways that we screw up our lives. I mean, we just screw up our lives so, so bad, and we're so bad to each other sometimes. And even then, we have hope because there's something in us that our actions, as bad as they are, there's something in us that those actions cannot extinguish. There's something that God delights in inside of us that what we do can't extinguish. And, And there's always this part of us that can repent and turn back to God. There's always this part of us, no matter how bad we screw it up, there's always this part of us that can eventually come to see the emptiness of our sin and the futility of our self-centeredness, and we can turn back to God. Just like 
Just like Jacob did in the Old Testament, turning back to his brother Esau. Just like the prodigal son turning back to his dad. Just like I've turned back to God when I've screwed up. And just like you've turned back to God when you've screwed up. uh, There's something in us that cannot be killed by our sins. And God delights in that. Uh, There's this part of us that has this potential to live an agape love relationship. There's this part of us that has this potential to be unified in the same way that God is unified, uh, Jesus tells us in John 17. And I think this is part of what it means to be made in God's image. God sees that in us and he delights in that. Our delightfulness is greater than our sin. And so it's no surprise when we get to Jesus Uh, And Jesus is born in the manger and he grows up and we see this delight in Jesus' life. I mean, first of all, right away, right off the bat, the fact, the profound fact that God became a person, (laughs) uh, that that God took on flesh, uh, this this by itself is like a generalized statement of delight. I like humanity so much, I'm going to become one of them. Right? I mean, you're not going to become one of them if you don't delight in them, if you don't like them, if you despise them, if you loathe them, if you think they're despicable, if you think they're horrible, you're not going to become one of them. You're just not going to. But if you delight in them, then you might be willing to become one of them. And so God delights in humanity so much that he becomes one of us. Uh, But not just humanity in general, he also delights in individuals. And there are so many examples of this, and I had to cut out 90% of them, (laughs) unfortunately. But like one, for instance, Jesus is doing his Jesus thing, and all of these kids are climbing all over him. And the disciples come along, and they're shooing these kids. Get out of here, kids. Scram, scram, scram. And Jesus says, whoa, no, don't. Let the children come to me, he says. And not only does he tolerate these kids, but then he teaches the disciples a lesson. I tell you, there's something delightful about these kids that you're lacking. There's something delightful about these kids that you need to recognize. The kingdom of God is made up of such as these. You guys are striving to be great in the kingdom of God, and these kids already are. And and so Jesus is delighting in these kids. And you see this again and again. You have Zacchaeus, the tax collector, that Jesus wants to spend the day in his house. You've got the Roman centurion that Jesus says, boy, I've never met anybody like you, he says to him. And, and you've got the, the, the lady with the two coins, the poor lady that Jesus celebrates, and the Samaritan woman. And you've got Mary Magdalene and Peter that, that Jesus delights in. And, and those are just the ones that are recorded. And who knows how many of these encounters are not even recorded. God delights in us individually. He delights in you. He delights in me. And that is such a great gift. And, you know, yes, God loves us, but I think we also need to recognize this delight part. And the two are definitely related, of course. When you love somebody, you delight in them. Uh, That's just natural. And if you've ever seen new parents, uh, if Todd and Margot have a baby, you've seen this. You've seen the drunkenness that parents have when they have a kid. They just get... They get toddler eyes. They just, they're so fascinated by this little baby that's been born and they can't take their eyes off this kid and they celebrate everything the kid does and they just get so fascinated by it. And the little kid can say, you know, dada? And Todd will go, she said dada. Did you hear that? She spoke her first word. And you're listening. You're like, I don't know if she actually did that. Uh, Get back to me when she does her GRE, all right? Let me tap the brakes on. But no, they can't help it. They can't help but delight in what the kid does. And hey, 
If you're there when the kid takes the first step, look out because Todd and Margot are going to make it sound like they just won the lottery. I mean, this is big stuff here. Look, she's walking. And she's got her hand on the coffee table, so she's cheating, but that doesn't matter. Todd and Margot are just so fascinated. They can't help but delight in this kid that they love so much. And, uh, and, and here's the part that I, I really want to focus on, is that I think that we need to be delighted in. And I think that we need to delight in one another. I think that love is built on that delight. Real agape love has this delight component. We like each other. And and so I think that's a big part of loving one another is learning how to like one another. And and I've seen it so many times where I, I believe that we love our kids and I believe that we love one another, but we have a real hard time with the delight part. And I've even seen this sadly in parents. Uh, You know, I worked uh, in mental health. I worked at the hospital. And I remember I had a really hard first year. But one of the things I noticed um, working in this hospital, locked unit, uh, it's a kid's unit, ages 5 to 18, kids who are experiencing chemical abuse or chemical dependency. Yes, as young as 5, which is very sad. And some of these kids came from very well-to-do families. And, um, and I remember having multiple conversations with parents about their feelings for their kid, and the kid just feels like they don't feel loved. And the parents are like, what are you talking about? I put a roof over your head, I give you food, and uh, that's not enough. <laughs> a roof and food, that's not enough for love. That's not what the kids need. You can't live on the moon and send money and food to your kids on earth. That's not love. You need, they need to be delighted in. And I, I saw this firsthand, you know. I, like I said, that first year working on this unit, it was really tough because, you know, they were there because of some type of chemical issue, but 99.99999% of them were also diagnosed with ADD, attention deficit disorder. And you know, one of the things you find with ADD is ADD kids have a hard time going to bed. And uh, a lot of times ADD kids will be night owls. And there are reasons for that, and I'll let you uh, look into that yourself. But so a lot of times kids had problems at bedtime because in the hospital we have rules. You have lights out at 9.30, you know. And so I wanted to do good at my job, and so I, I would do this. I would say, okay, these kids have a hard time going to bed. I need to go in. Since they have a deficit in their ability to attend, I need to respond with firm guidelines and clear expectations and clear rules. And so I got to be firm. So I would go in there and I'd say, hey, it's 9.35. The lights need to be out. Click the lights off. You have to be in bed. Time to go to bed. And I'd come back five minutes later. The lights would be on. He'd be reading or drawing or something. I'd say, hey, lights out. And I'd be firm. And I'd turn the lights off. You got to get to bed. And, I'd, and, and, and so I would raise my voice sometimes like, hey, you got to go to bed. This is what you, you're supposed to do. And it didn't work. <laughs> It failed miserably. Uh, What would happen is uh, instead of helping them attend to the things that they were supposed to attend to, I would just get into a power struggle with them. And there would be these huge arguments sometimes and things would get thrown and broken by them, by the way, just to be clear. (laughs) I wasn't doing that. So they would start throwing things. Sometimes I would have to order emergency medications and sometimes we would have to bring them to the seclusion room. And then finally, when the meds kicked in at 1.30, they would finally go to sleep. I was not good at this. And I remember thinking, I think I need to find a different job. And, uh, but then I thought, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What if, what if I'm thinking of this wrong? What if, uh, maybe this is all just backwards, what if their attention deficit is not a deficit in their ability to attend, what if it's a deficit in the attention that they should have received? 
Ah, oh, I thought, that's interesting. I said, well, I might as well try it because whatever I'm doing is not working. So, uh, so from that point on, I said, okay, I'm going to look for the kids who have troubles at night and I'm going to go in, bedtime's at 9.30. I'm going to start at 9.10 and just go to those kids who have a hard time and I'm just going to go in and spend a couple minutes with them. And so I would go in and, and I would say, hey, Benny, good job today in group, man. You did really well. Holy cow, did you draw this? Look at this. Those skulls look so real. Wow. <laughs> Look at that. And of course, if you show any interest at all, well, here comes the big stack of drawings. Look at these. And so Benny brings the big stack of drawings and, and oh, look at this guy's head is on fire. He looks pissed. Wow, these are really, you're really talented. Well, hey, Benny, listen, uh, I got to go do charting and we got a big day tomorrow. So just so you remember, lights out at 930. And I got to tell you, spending three minutes with these kids, uh, the amount of kids that just would turn the light off on their own and go to bed, it was amazing. It wasn't 100%, I mean, no, but it was so much better. And it worked so, so, so much better than what I was doing. And when Benny felt secured by their caretaker, when he felt like, I'm okay, he was able to do what he was supposed to do. And, um, and I just think that that was just so important. When he felt delighted in, when he felt worthy it was okay for him to go to bed. And uh, there was no reason to stay up anymore. And I, I just think that's so important. And then later on, uh, I did find some research that sort of validated some of these intuitions that I had. Uh, the most recent book I read was Scattered Minds by Gaber Mate. Uh, and he kind of explores some of these things. So if this interests you, definitely check that out. But I just think it's so important. Look at the power of being delighted in, you know? And, um, and, and God delights in us. And I think... It's important for us to tap into that fact that God delights in us. Uh, this, I just added this, so I don't have a slide for it, but this is Zephaniah 3.17. And, uh, and it says this, The Lord your God is among you. He's here with you. He is mighty to save you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Just like Benny. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now he sounds like Todd and Margot. <laughs> he will rejoice over you with his singing. That's how delighted God is. It's just so beautiful. And it all makes sense. Because you have to remember, this is a God who from the very beginning has wanted to dwell with us. And you find this in, in Exodus and you find this in the book of Acts and you find this in Revelation 21 that his whole point is that he wants to dwell with us as his God. God, and he wants us to be his people in his kingdom. And his kingdom is eternal. So I tell you what, if God wants to spend eternity with us, he'd better delight in us. <laughs> he better not loathe us. I mean, that's going to be really tough on God if he loathes us. No, he doesn't loathe us. He delights in us. Uh, and and I, to me, this is just such good news. And it's such a good Christmas gift because I think it's a part of God's grace that gets missed. And, and so often we hear sermons about God's grace and it's juxtaposed against human sin. And I think that's important because we need saving from our sin. And our sin is terrible and it's, it's uh, poison and it's, uh, it needs to be dealt with. And it is God's grace that takes care of our sin. But so often, the way that these sermons are juxtaposed, in order to make God's grace look greater, people will make human deplorability Worse. So we, humans are so, look at how deplorable people, look at what God's grace has to get through. And the, so there's this exaggeration about our human deplorability. And, and humans can be pretty deplorable. I'm not saying that we can't. However, there's got to be a floor 
to our deplorability. Because no matter how bad we screw up, there's still something there that God delights in. And, and I think that the, the beauty of God's grace is found in the fact that he delights in us, that there's something in us that God delights in. And, uh, and, and so I just think that's so important. And so in closing, I just want to leave you with this question. God delights in you. God delights in me. Are we living into that delight? Are we really living as people who God delights in? And there's a lot of aspects to that, a lot of dimensions to it, I'm sure. Definitely part of that has to be, okay, now it's time to delight in God. And, and you know, the Psalms talk a lot about delighting in the Lord. But I think the part that I want to focus on is the question is, are we delighting in ourselves and each other? Because that, it seems to me, to be really hard. Uh, it's hard to delight in each other, especially today, our polarized world and all of that, of course. But more than that, I feel like we're nurtured and raised in a culture that gives us a set of skills that sort of sabotages our potential to delight in each other. We're raised in a culture that trains us from early on how to judge one another and how to be suspicious of one another. And so we walk around with constant live-action Yelp reviews about everybody that we encounter. That's how we walk around. And guess what? It's hard to delight in people when you're doing that. But that's how we're raised to do it. And, and, and then you look at the scripture, and the scripture says to love one another and to build one another up and to encourage one another. And I tell you what, it's hard to encourage and build up somebody that you loathe. <laughs> it, but it's easy when you delight in them. If you delight in a person, boy, it's a lot easier to encourage them and build them up. And that is what I think we're called to do. We're called to delight in people. We're called to delight in each other because we need to be delighted in and they need to be delighted in. Now, some people are easier to delight in than others. <laughs> uh, and, and each of us have our own buttons that get pushed and all of that. And so uh, just one thing I'd encourage you to think about is we're all flawed. We're all sinners. We're all broken. Um, we all have shortcomings. And yet God still delights in us. And he calls us to delight in others. And so somehow we have to get through that. And this is a great time because we are going to be with our families. And we are going to be with our friends. And there might be people there that you don't like. And you might not have, you, you, hey, you might have good reason for not liking them, for sure. Uh, and, um, and of course, the other fact is, like I said, we're not good to each other. We're, and sometimes people hurt us. And we have to be safe, of course. God doesn't want us to put ourselves in danger just to try to delight in somebody who's dangerous to us. Of course not. But I feel like we could be trying a lot more to delight in one another. Imagine the world if everyone developed the skill of learning how to delight in each other. Can you imagine if, if, if you take our ability to judge one another and to find faults in one another and flip that to our ability to find delight in one another, can you imagine how great this world would be? Uh, and and I, I, to me, I just think that this is the answer if we could do this. Um, and so how do we do it? How do we delight in people that we maybe don't even like? And I, I, I just got three ideas to share, and this is what I'll close on. The first idea, and again, you know, try this for yourself. This helps for me and uh, see what you think of it. Let me know what you think of it. The first one is put on toddler vision. Um, now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that we tend to have really high expectations for other people. We tend to uh, expect people to be true and 
pure and moral and ethical and loyal. Uh, Now, sometimes we're not true and ethical and pure and loyal, but there's reasons for that because if you understood my upbringing and then, uh, you know, there was what the stock market did to me and then the Vikings lost in overtime and then there was that weather that happened. If you understood all that, you would understand. No, no, see, notice how I have all sorts of explanations for my immorality, but for other people, I have crushing expectations (laughs) and there's no leeway there. And uh, so for me, it's been really helpful to just notice that... um, there's no clear line between uh, Todd and Margot's toddler and Todd and Margot. <laughs> There's not a magic portal that you go through where suddenly you were once a toddler and now you're an adult. And, and the fact is, the real truth, when you put on your toddler glasses, is we are all unfinished children. All of us. We're all unfinished children. Me and you and our boss and our parents and Vladimir Putin and Shaquille O'Neal. And out, they're all unfinished children. And that's not a slight on Shaquille O'Neal, by the way. He's, I, I love you, Shaq. Uh, but we're all unfinished children. And I tell you, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. It's not. Because even though we're unfinished children, we still have control over ourselves and we still have responsibility. But I hope that it puts people in their proper size. It gets people down off of that impossible expectation that we hold from them. Uh, And I just love in in the New Testament when you'll see this multiple times, when people will come to Jesus and they'll just, they lose control. They fall at Jesus' feet and they just weep and they weep and they weep. And you can just see that this whole facade that they've been carrying their whole life, that they are more mature and more with it than they really are, when they're at Jesus' feet, they feel this permission to just be the unfinished child that they really are. And that's what we are. We are unfinished children. And so I hope that, that we can look at each other as the unfinished toddlers that we are with various levels of maturity paint for sure. But and, and hopefully that just allows us to uh, find delight in one another. Because listen, when you watch a toddler uh, screw up, it's cute, <laughs> right? I mean, he's trying his best. Uh, and, and for some reason, when adults screw up, we're just ruthless and uh, we've lost that tenderness. And so hopefully uh, toddler vision will, will help with that. A second thing that we've talked a lot about here is... Try to look for a person's backstory. Look for, you know, they might be bothering you. They might be driving you crazy in the moment, but there might be reasons why they're like that. And if you could find their backstory and find what it is that led them to what they're doing right now, sometimes, and again, it's not an excuse because they still have control over themselves, but sometimes it can give you this opportunity to find something there that you can have mercy for and, and a, a more tender assessment of them. And, and maybe even a baseline, like, yeah, they're being really cruel right now, and they're saying some really mean things, but, uh, you know, they just, I don't know, I make, I don't know what it could be. They just survived a plane crash. I don't know. But maybe you could see the baseline of where they came from. You could see how far they've come. And, uh, and that gives you an opportunity to find mercy and maybe even delight. The third idea is really crazy and radical, and, and, uh, but it's been really helpful for me. And uh, so try it on for yourself if you like it. Uh, because when you look for a person's backstory, you're still very zoomed in on them. And that's what judgment is too. When you judge people, you get zoomed in on them. And, and so I'm always looking for ways that I can zoom out a little bit. So I'm not like right there. I can zoom out and, and see a bigger picture. And, and I tell you what, if you've noticed in shows, movies, television shows, I just think it's cool how in shows, there's always characters that you just love in the show. But if you think about it, you wouldn't really like them in real life, but on the show, they're great. And like my favorite Christmas story is 
Christmas Vacation. And, right? It's a great movie. Can you imagine Christmas Vacation without Cousin Eddie? <laughs> no way! That there is an RV. <laughs> and I can't say his best lines, but that, that's, that's one of them. But, uh, However, I would not want to be roommates with Cousin Eddie at the same time. Uh, so Cousin Eddie on his own merits, man, I don't think I could, I, 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 that's intolerable. But in the context of the story, Cousin Eddie is great. And all of these shows have this. Uh, Seinfeld has Kramer, and you've got shows like Breaking Bad, which is made up of a bunch of scoundrels. And, and, uh, and every show has these characters that on their own merits, they're terrible people, you don't want anything to do with them, but you want them in the story. And the fact is, is that our life is a story. And so if we can zoom out just a little bit from the person that we're bothered by and we can see the story that we're experiencing and see how they fit in as a character in our little sitcom, I think that that opens up a little space where in the same way that Cousin Eddie delights us on Christmas vacation, Uncle Gus can delight us at the Christmas party even though he drives me crazy. Uh, and so that's the idea, is zoom out. Instead of viewing the people at the Christmas dinner, view it as the Christmas dinner story. Instead of view it as the coworkers I don't like, view it as the, the Christmas work party, uh, or the business meeting, or the contract negotiation, or the shopping trip. That lady cut you off when you were trying to buy your gizmo. Uh, this is part of the story. This is, it's not, you know, you don't have to get so fixated on her. You can just look at how this fits in. I mean, how many of us, have not had situations that we don't like. Like, this sucks, but it's going to make a great story. <laughs> We've all had that. And, and story transforms our woe, and it transforms people into something that can be, in a way, delightful. And it's the beginning. It's just the start of showing delight in others. Because when you live really close and you're zoomed in on your feelings about a particular person, that can be intolerable. But if you can zoom out and see the story, sometimes that can be very delightful. Uh, and so our life is a story. Uh, maybe you could call it a sitcom. And for some of you, your family is very much like a sitcom. And you probably have a cousin Eddie in your family. And if you can't think of a cousin Eddie, you might be the cousin Eddie. <laughs> Just telling you, a warning about that. Now, what I'm not saying is that the story is not the end in itself. The goal is delight. I mean, Jaws is a great story too, but don't go swimming with sharks, all right? Uh, it, that's, that's not the point. The point is, is to try to create space to delight in people. Um, life is a story, and, and the people that are in your life, they're playing a part in your story. Uh, and you have some say-so over what kind of story your story is going to be like. Is your story going to be a story that, that is just filled with, with acrimony and uh, 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 resentment toward Uncle Gus because uh, of his political views or whatever? Or is your story going to be a story that is bigger than Uncle Gus? Is your story going to be a story that uh, can withstand Uncle Gus because you love God and, and that you delight in people and whatever. I mean, you have control. You're the director of your story. Um, now, you don't have total control. It's largely improv, but you have a lot of say-so over the type of story that you, your story is going to be. Um, and their life, the person that bothers you, they have a story also. And you're part of their story. And so a question is, is what role are you going to play in their story? Are you going to be somebody that when they tell their story and they talk about how you played a role in it, what role is that going to be? Is that going to be the role of anger and retribution or a role of forgiveness and encouragement and building up and helping them be better and things like that? What a great opportunity this is to delight in one another and to be a delightful part of another person's story. Uh, 
And the bigger picture, as you zoom out even more, is that we are all part of God's bigger story. Um, we are. This is, God has this big story that's going on, and we're a part of it. And here's the thing, is since God is just, and since God is forgiving and merciful and faithful, we know that the story ends well. We know that it ends well. And we can start living into that great story now. And uh, so I encourage you to consider that and to try that on. Uh, I'm thankful to be a part of this story at Woodland Hills with you. And uh, if you uh, want to be more a part of the story of Woodland Hills, you can join our gathering groups on Monday and Tuesday. And, um, and then Musecast is on Tuesday. Shauna and I will do a behind-the-scenes director's cut of the story that's going on. And then uh, we also have prayer requests up front. If you have some questions about your script or whatever and you need prayer over your part of the story, uh, you can pray up here up front. Also, you can pray online. Uh, And Greg will be back next week to close off this Christmas series uh, with cookies. So uh, with that, uh, it's so great to have you here and it's so great to be a part of this story with you. Have a blessed week.